Gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation of their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. Now, today, not only are you bidding farewell to my family and me and to many of your friends, But today we're going to take our farewell for the week at least of Brother Moses and of that generation that did great exploits for God. We think about how at the beginning of this chapter, his godly sister Miriam, who was on times a great encouragement to the nation, but sadly also an example of human failure back in chapter 11. And then at the end of this chapter, we're going to get the death of Aaron. But in between, we have a singular failure in the life of Moses. And it's really a bit sad to see that after so many years of faithfulness and being declared by no less than God Almighty himself as the meekest man on the face of the earth, that at the end of the day, when he's approaching the end of the mission, Moses stumbles and falls with tremendous personal consequences. Now, I don't want to leave you on a downer this week. We need to take seriously the warnings that Scripture gives to us. We need to learn that godly people can fall if they're not walking closely to the Lord, that any of us can fall, in fact. As the Holy Spirit puts it in 1 Corinthians 10 for us, looking back to these events in the wilderness, not necessarily mentioning this incident specifically, but the whole epoch of the wilderness wanderings. And chapter 10, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians reminds us, let him who thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. In other words, there's not any one of us who can't fall into serious sin. There's not any one of us who can put our feet up on a table down here and say, ah, now I've arrived. No, listen to Paul in Philippians 3, as he says, Brethren, I consider not myself to have attained, but I press on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I want to go all the way, full tilt to the finish line, as it were. I'm stretching forward to that. He uses a runner's metaphor. And I think about one of my favorite films, Chariots of Fire, which is based in fact. It tells the story about two runners, H.M. Abrams and Eric Little, or some say Liddell. I don't know the proper pronunciation. One of you Scotsmen can get me after the meeting and sort me out. Uh, But anyway, these two different runners are, are the story of that movie. And Abrams is so bent upon winning, he does what He's not supposed to do in that day. He hires a coach, a guy called Sam Musabini. 
And Masabini, as he's training him to run, he's showing him slides of the previous Olympics. And he's talking about some of the great sprinters of the day. And he says, now you see this guy here? The reason he lost the race is at the last minute he turned his head to look at the guy that was bearing down on him and he took the tape from him. He says, when you come through that tape, you've got to be pressing forward with everything you have. I'm not built like a runner. I'm trying to think of a sport I would be built like. Maybe I could be a hockey puck or something. I don't know. But you'll have to use your imagination. But you can envision that, can't you? The runner coming across the tape. And that's really how the Christian life is. And Paul's able to say at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, when he realizes that the end is near, he's saying, I have finished my course. I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. That deposit that God had given to him, Paul had kept what was entrusted to him. And he said, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me. And not only me, but also all those who love his appearing. Now, may we be walking carefully every day. May we be getting up every day as our late brother Bill McDonald via brother Steve Price reminded us yesterday and saying, Lord, my body, thy living sacrifice, that we might be walking closely to the Lord so that when we approach the finish line or any time before, we don't stumble. Now, we are going to see God's grace toward Moses. Don't worry about that. But I want to unpack a little bit about his failure and why it was so serious. You might say, what's the big deal? He only hit the rock twice. And after all, from a utilitarian perspective, it worked, right? I mean, the end justifies the means. Isn't that a Machiavellian sort of notion? Not Prince Machiavelli, the Cologne. I'm referring to the political science treatise, The Prince. Oh, groan, it's Saturday. We've endured all the week, and now the man's bringing back to us ninth grade English. Okay, whatever. Anyway... People might say, well, the water came forth and that's all that matters, right? The blessing flowed, so it doesn't matter how you get there. Now, I want to tell you this morning, if you forget everything else I say, that how we do the work of the Lord is just as important as doing the work of the Lord because the Lord is jealous of his glory. I'll repeat that. How we do the work of the Lord is just as important as doing the work of the Lord Because God is jealous of his glory. He wants his glory to be manifested, and we want to show it in the way we do things. Now, in this case, the children of Israel, true to form, were complaining, and they were thirsty. And they began to say, why have you brought us out into this desert to kill us? And we had it better back in Egypt, you know. And and there was a guy going around selling choros and bottled water and who knows what else, you know. And there we had a great time down in Egypt. And here you've brought us out to this desert where there's no water and we're thirsty. And and there's no, this isn't a land of vines and figs. Well, mm -hmm. I beg your pardon. God never promised the wilderness to be the fertile land of milk and honey, did he? And why were they in the wilderness? Well, they were in the wilderness at this juncture because that previous generation had refused to go in and take that bountiful land that God promised them. Isn't it funny how we human beings can sometimes get ourselves into trouble and then turn around and blame God? 
and say, now look, God, if you hadn't brought me here, and if you hadn't put that there, and if you hadn't let me do this, I wouldn't have gotten into this mess. Notice the pronouns there. It was all I, I, I. And yet I'm laying the blame at God's door. We can't do that. See, God is good all the time. God isn't the author of sin. God isn't going to lead us to sin. He doesn't tempt any man to evil. He doesn't tempt anyone to make them fall. His testing is to refine, to purify our faith, not to break us and make us fall into sin. That's not God's methodology, his modus operandi. So what God instructs Moses to do in great grace, put aside the tone and the stridency of what they're saying, Moses. This is a legitimate need. They're thirsty people. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you view the character of God? When people are hurting, when people are thirsty, when people have a legitimate need, be it physical or spiritual, do you think God cares about that? The New Testament tells me he does. In fact, I'll ask forgiveness. It's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. But when we talk about the priesthood of the Lord Jesus, Hebrews chapter 4 calls him a merciful and a faithful high priest. He is able to be merciful, the Bible says, because he has been tested in all points like as we are. In other words, however difficult you may think your way is, however bad your situation may seem to you, and it may be bad, I'm not trying to negate that or make that less, the Lord Jesus has been there and he's actually been lower, he's suffered worse. And he understands pressure. He understands tribulation. He understands difficulty. He understands persecution. He's been there, tested in every way, except he's never failed. He's totally sin apart, as some would translate the phrase from Hebrews 4. So how does God respond when we come to him and say, God, I'm hurting. God, I'm thirsty. Does God say, you know, this is about the 13th million time in your life that you've asked me for something. And I'm really kind of getting sick of it. I mean, what have you done for me lately? You know, what kind of great accomplishments, what could you possibly do in your life that's equivalent to all of the grace I've shown you and all of the good things I've shown you? And I've taken care of you all these years and all these decades, he could say to Israel. And now here you are again. I'm thirsty. Blah, blah, blah. Why did you bring us out here to kill us? Blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to do it. Is that the spirit and the nature of God? Well, let's see. You see, back in number 16, God wanted to, sorry, number 17, God wanted to underscore who his choice for high priest was. It was the house of Aaron. And God did this immediately after that incident with Korah that we spoke about earlier in the week in chapter 16, where Korah and his friends basically said, you take too much on yourself, Moses and Aaron. You guys think you're the only ones who have a hotline to God and can mediate for the people and represent them in priestly work. We can do it too. And God said, sorry, that's not true at all. The way of approach is, first of all, determined by divine calling. God has to call you to the priesthood. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've responded to his calling for salvation, uh, salvation is a wonderful package deal. 
You get heaven, that's true. You get forgiveness of sins, that's also true. You get delivered from the wrath to come, that is true as well. You also get to serve as a priest, as Brother Steve has been so eloquently telling us this week. But in that day, it was restricted to one family, the house of Aaron. And God marked them out in chapter 17 in a very clear way. He said, let a leader from each of the tribes take a staff, write the name of the tribe on that staff, put it before the Lord, and the next morning God's going to show who he is. And they come, and Aaron's rod, in contradistinction to all the other rods of the tribes, they were still just dead pieces of wood. His rod had sprouted and brought forth almonds. Aaron's rod that budded, the King James put it. And God said, let that be laid up before the Lord as lasting testimony, whom I have chosen as my priest. So get that in your mind. This rod from number 17 is the sign of priesthood. Now, you may remember that in Exodus 17, there is an incident that has some superficial similarities to this incident in Numbers chapter 20. There in Exodus 17, which was about almost 40 years before by this point in time, there the people were thirsty as well. And God told Moses, go to the rock and strike the rock and water will come forth from the rock. And that's what happened. The rod Moses was using on that occasion was a different rod from the one that we read of in Numbers 17, because Numbers 17, chronologically, is much after that time. The rod Moses was using in Exodus 17 was the rod of God's judgment. You remember it was that cool rod that he had there before Pharaoh. He could throw it down and turn it into a venomous snake. Not just any kind of venomous snake. This is my daughter Nadia's favorite part of the message. She's, she loves snakes. You know, that's her thing right now. And uh, when Moses threw down that, that, that rod and it became a serpent, the, the magi, the wise men of Egypt, so-called, they said, well, we can do that trick as well. And they threw down their staves and turned them into serpents. And you remember that Moses' serpent ate their servants. Yeah, my dad can beat your dad. My serpent can eat your serpent, that kind of thing. So this was the rod of judgment. The rod that Moses stretched forth and the Nile turned into blood. The rod that he upheld and God's judgment fell upon Egypt and later in Exodus 17 upon the Amalekites. Now those who notice analogy and especially typology in Scripture will point out, well, that that rock in Exodus 17 is an excellent picture of the Lord Jesus. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10 bears that out. It says, Israel drank of that rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. And the rock to give his life-giving water had to be struck, they say. He had to be smitten. You know, the Bible ends in its last chapter, Revelation 22, with this invitation. Let him who is a thirst come to the water of life. God's still offering that water of life. Do you realize what it cost him to offer you salvation? It cost him the death of his son. It cost the Lord Jesus his own life's blood. He laid down his life as a sacrifice and he rose again. And now he offers that living water to whosoever will that may come and drink of that water of life freely. What a wonderful, gracious God he is. Now, keep that in mind. That was a rod of judgment. This rod, however, 
in the book of Numbers, and I'm indebted, by the way, to David Gooding for this insight in a personal email. So I'm, I'm footnoting. That's what uh, my professors are smiling somewhere, uh, that something sunk in. But anyway, Brother Gooding points out that the last time you read of the rod in Numbers, it's not the rod of judgment, the rod of Exodus 17. It's the rod of Aaron's priesthood. And now God tells Moses and Aaron, now take the rod. You're going to go there, and you're standing before this rock. Notice verse 9 says, Moses took the rod from before the Lord. That's the same thing, same way it's described back in chapter 17 of Numbers. He says, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes. Hmm. Now, some people will look at this, and again, they love that beautiful type of the Lord Jesus being smitten in Exodus 17, and they'll say, well, the reason Moses was forbidden to enter the land, to lead the people into the land, was because he smote the rock twice, and that spoiled the type. Well, no doubt it did, but I would argue that that's more of an application. Notice what the text says here about what the problem was. Moses says in verse 10, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Now, isn't that interesting? What was the representation? What was the, the effect that was put forth by that activity. Well, notice Moses is standing there and he's saying, uh, you guys are a bunch of rebels. Now, I can't really blame them. I might have called them worse. I mean, after all those years of them murmuring and complaining and him taking care of them and putting up with them and when they should have been wiped out, praying for them and interceding for them. And now Moses has had it up to here, right up to his beard. And he says, you're rebels. Must we bring forth water from the rock? And water came forth. He was probably walking away like we heard from a more inch, uh, an earlier illustration this week saying that went well except it didn't go well did it because what had he shown well Moses and Aaron are supposed to be God's representatives to the people at this moment and they are pointing out the sin and the failure of the people which may have been true in the grand objective sense of things but that wasn't what God told them to do. He didn't say, Moses, go and rebuke them, and then I'll do a miracle for them. He said, Moses, go and speak to the rock, and I'll give them water. So what he's portraying of God, number one, is it's Moses doing it. Moses is the man. He's the guy with the power. And I tell you what, however gifted we may be, however much used of the Lord we may be, if we start thinking, or worse still, giving out the idea that the power is ours, that it's us that's doing it, then we've totally missed out on what God wants us to do. Again, he is jealous of his glory. The power is God's. That's why he intentionally picks the weak things, why he intentionally picks the foolish things of this world, so we can show his power and his wisdom. First Corinthians 1 teaches that. 
So you're here today, you say to yourself, well, I'm not much, I don't have much. Great, you're just the kind of person the Lord wants to use for his glory. If you're here today and you're saying, hey, I'm pretty good, I'm pretty clever, I'm pretty smart, I've got all these talents, all these abilities, my brother, my sister, you've got some lessons to learn before you can begin to be really useful to the Lord. I'm not saying he won't use you. He uses us all in spite of ourselves. But it will hinder you. It will keep you from the fullest extent of usefulness if you're focused on you. No, Paul was always one who was pointing to Christ. Not I, but Christ. And that made a lasting difference. Now, he spoke to, instead of speaking to that rock, he struck it twice. And what does that imagery suggest? Well, if this is the rod of priesthood, the rod of intercession, when I have a need, when I am thirsty, when I have a legitimate problem, do I go to the throne of grace and find that it's a throne where God beats me up? Is it a place where God says, now here you are again with your problems, with your complaints, can't you get it together? And he just sort of beats us around and says, okay, begrudgingly, I'll give you what you want. That's not the God of the Bible. People think that's how God is in the world, but that's because they don't know him. He gives freely. Paul asked the rhetorical question in Romans 8, how shall he who spared not his own son, but deliver him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? I love that. Those prepositional phrases are key. He's giving us Christ, which is everything, with him. And then if there's anything else beyond Christ, he's giving us all things. Can we have more from God? My brother, my sister, it's right there for the taking. Dear friend who doesn't know the Lord Jesus, you're missing out on tremendous riches. What the Bible calls the riches of his grace. The Lord is offering you everything. This world, if you want it and you seek it and you try to hold on to it, the Lord Jesus said you'll lose it. You won't be able to keep it for eternity. But if you lose this world for his sake and you say, I want the Lord Jesus, take the world but give me Jesus, all its joys are but a name, you'll have that which cannot be taken away from you. Well, Moses and Aaron disobeyed the explicit instruction of the Lord, didn't do it the Lord's way, and what's more, put forward a false concept of the priesthood that God had established. That somehow God is hard. That God is one who grudgingly gives us what we need. That he's sort of a miserly being who doles out his blessings in dribs and drabs. No, no, that's not God. You know, in grace, in spite of Moses' failure and Aaron's failure, he gives the water. And the people drink. And you notice what it said. Not just the people drink, but their animals drank. Now, some of these crazy people that don't believe in God, they really elevate animals out of proportion. And, you know, suddenly Shamu the whale becomes more important than homeless people dying on our streets or more important than babies aborted in the womb. And they cry and they feel bad about the baby seals. They don't feel bad about the baby humans. So when you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, your mind is blind and you can come to all sorts of absurd ideas. But let me tell you, when we know the Lord, we value his creation and we are stewards of it. We take care of it. And God himself shows mercy to the animals. You know, even when Jonah 
is going to that city of Nineveh, God not only says, shouldn't I spare this city with all of these people in it who don't know their right hand from their left? There's debate about what that phrase means. I think it might mean little children. But anyway, it's a great city. And God says, shouldn't I spare it for all the people's sake? And much cattle also, says the Lord. And my father-in-law smiling on that one because he was a beef cattle farmer. God even cares about the animals. That's the mercy of our God. That's the tenderness of our God. That's his kindness. So even though his servant fails, he still ministers to his people's needs and grace. But Moses and Aaron are told that because they didn't hallow the Lord in the eyes of the children of Israel. To hallow means to sanctify, to set apart him as holy. In other words, to uphold his unique claims and say, this is the Lord. We have to do it exactly his way. Because they didn't do that, they were forbidden to have the privilege to lead the people into the land. You say, that's a terrible failure. Indeed, it was. Moses really lamented it. He felt it. You read Deuteronomy chapter 1, and when he's repeating their recent history, he says, and you, you got me so worked up that I, I got out of control there, and I said what I shouldn't have and did what I shouldn't have, and now I don't get to go into the land. And Moses later begs the Lord, please let me go over and go into that land. God says, no, but in grace, I'll let you see it. I'll take you to a high mountain, and I'll give you a guided tour. I'll show you it from the south to the north, Moses. But I tell you, God's much better than that. When we get to the New Testament, God has the Lord Jesus on one occasion go up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And the Lord Jesus shines there in glory. And a few of his disciples that are with him, Peter, James, and John, they're blown away as they see the glory of the Lord. But the Lord's not alone in glory. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord wants to share his glory. Hebrews 2 says he's bringing many sons to glory. And there is the Lord standing with two of the great Old Testament saints, Elijah representing the prophets and Moses representing the law. And they're standing there in glory. Now, okay, Simon Peter gets carried away and says what he shouldn't, but that's okay. The Lord straightens him out. The father says to him, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. In other words, this one has unique glory. Don't get enamored with Moses. Don't get enamored with Elijah. It's the Lord Jesus you need to see and to hear. But Luke adds this special touch when he relates it. He says they spoke to the Lord Jesus concerning the exodus that he was about to make at Jerusalem. That's literally what it says. Now, exodus, you'll see it if you ever fly Olympic Airlines the Greek airline, it, it's over the doorways in Greek, okay? I always laugh at that when I'm going out Exodus. It just means the exit, the way out is what it means. And think of it. Moses was standing there in glory, talking to the Lord Jesus and saying, yes, you used me, Lord, to bring the people of God out of Egypt. That was a great Exodus. But what you're going to do when you leave this world, it's going to be better. 
Because when you say it is finished, Father, into my hands, into thy hands I commit my spirit. When you give up your life, you're going to have done so, having given your life as a sacrifice for sin, having removed that from the equation as far as salvation is concerned. You're going to, in the words of Ephesians 4, quoting Psalm 68, lead captivity captive and give gifts unto men. You're going to ascend up on high. You're going to enter into heaven and be seated on the right hand of God, as 1 Peter 3 says, angels and principalities and powers being made subject to you. Or as Hebrews says, you'll be seated on the right hand of the majesty and until the enemies are made the footstool of your feet. That's a much better exodus, Lord, than the one you used me to do. But think about where that conversation's taking place. Where's Moses standing He's not on Mount Nebo. He's not across the Jordan River over in Moab territory. He's in the land. In glory, he gets into the land. Isn't that wonderful? In spite of his failure, here God gives him this blessing. You finally made it, Moses. Not because of your faithfulness, because of mine, because of my grace. You know, when we read in Hebrews 11 about Moses... God just mentions the good stuff. He totally passes over this incident. It's what I call the gracious editorial ministry of God. It's a little foretaste of the judgment seat of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. The judgment seat of Christ is a serious affair. We have to take our service seriously, knowing we must one day give account to the Lord. There will be reward, but the Bible says we will also suffer loss. So I'm not trying to deny the seriousness of it or our need to live unto the Lord in a serious, obedient way. But having said that, isn't it wonderful that God isn't going to enshrine our failure for eternity? And every time we turn a corner in heaven, we're going to be reminded of our sin and our failure. No, I tell you what we'll be reminded of constantly in heaven. We're going to be reminded of the work of Christ that has cleansed and forgiven us. We're going to be reminded of the Savior who brought us to glory. We're going to be reminded of what he was able to do through us. And that's what's going to be remembered. So when you get to glory, how much of a red pen is God going to have to take to your life, believer? You know, teachers do that, don't they? They have the red pen. And they have to go through. I'm looking at Brother Jay, a former educator there. And I, they have to redline certain things and say, no, that phrase is wrong. Or that sentence has to go. Or in some case, that paragraph. We're just taking it right out. They have to mark it up and edit. Well, how much of our life is going to have to be edited out by God? Because God says it's wood, hay, and stubble in 1 Corinthians 3 language. It's not the stuff I want to build a lasting eternal building with. I want gold, silver, and precious stones. You know what those things all speak about in the Old Testament? Gold, silver, and precious stones are all used in the tabernacle to speak of the glory of God, to speak of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have to take our lives seriously. And yet, isn't it good to know God can restore the years which the locusts have eaten, as he told one of his servants, Joel. God is able to use us in spite of ourselves. And in the end, getting to glory isn't our work. It's his work in us. It's what he's faithfully promised to do. 
Well, in spite of Moses' failure and Aaron's failure and them not being granted the privilege of going into the land, there was someone who was going to be appointed to lead the people. Let's turn over to Numbers 27 and we shall see him. Numbers 27. And in verse 14, God refers again to this incident of why Moses isn't going to lead them in because of this failure. We'll pick it up in verse 15. Numbers 27, 15. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. Now that's a unique phrase. The God of the spirits of all flesh, as far as I can tell, occurs only one other time in the Old Testament. It's in this book of Numbers. It's back in chapter 16 in the incident about Korah. And Moses is saying, in essence, God, when you pick a leader, you're the one who knows the spirit of man. You know what's in man. You know every fiber and sinew of his being. You know what his soul and his heart is all about. So we need you to examine. It's not like we're going to have a campaign and just pick the guy that has the best slogans or makes the most grandiose uh, promises and so forth or kisses the most babies. We're going to pick the man that's really worthy that you examine. Verse 17, here's his job description. Who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Now, I love this about Moses. Moses isn't sitting there crying, saying, Now, Lord, you've rejected me. So I'm just going to kick a rock and say, Well, that's it. You all go to the land by yourselves. I don't care what happens to you. I mean, you've just been a problem to me, a headache. And, you know, go ahead, do it your way. God will get you in somehow, but I really don't care about it. Now, Moses spent 40 years in Midian learning to be a shepherd. And that heart never left him. He said, God, I don't want these people to be like sheep without a shepherd. You know what sheep are like? They're stupid. And they wander astray, the Bible says in in Isaiah 53. They wander astray and they get into danger. I want someone that's going to gather the scattered sheep and lead them in and out. And Joshua was going to be that man. Now, study Joshua. I'll give you some homework here. He is a great life to study. First time you meet him is that same chapter of Exodus 17 where he's fighting Amalek. As a young man, he's out there fighting the Lord's battles. Next time you see him, he's up on Mount Sinai with Moses. He's not able to go all the way up like Moses is called to do, but he's as near as he can be to the glory of God. He needs a little discernment because when he hears the feasting going on in the camp, he thinks it's war. He's ready to take out the sword. You know, ah, I'm ready to get him. Moses said, no, that's not the sound of war. That's the sound of a party. (laughs) And it's not a good party either. They were bowing down to the golden calf. He had to learn from Moses. But as a younger man, he attached himself to that older brother in the Lord. And when Moses moved the tent of meeting, the place where the people were to go and consult with God outside the camp, Joshua would go out there and he wouldn't depart from the tent of meeting. His heart was toward God's house. I want to be in God's house. I want to be with the Lord. I want to know the Lord more and more and more. When we meet him again in Numbers chapter 11, when God puts the spirit on the men he's given as helpers, he says, 
my Lord, forbid these guys from speaking in the congregation. (laughs) He's jealous for things to be done the right way. He's not correct. Moses has to correct him a little bit and say, no, this is okay, Joshua. The Lord is working here. Don't worry. But his ire, his desire is for God's messenger, God's man, Moses, not to be diminished. And then as he goes along all this way, being trained and and mentored by Moses, now the day's going to come when God's going to take the same spirit that's been on Moses and put it on Joshua. And Joshua's going to be that shepherd who leads the people in and out to find their food and back to safety in the imagery of a shepherd. And he's going to gather the scattered. In that, he's a picture of his much greater and lovely namesake, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as the Gospel of Matthew records, when he came and he saw the multitudes, he didn't say, look at all those people, what a pain. You know, like Groucho Marx said, a friend in need is a headache. That's not what the Lord said. (laughs) The Lord looked at them, the Bible says, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord wanted to gather his sheep. Well, the same thing we see at a lesser level with Joshua. And he's the man who gets the privilege of leading the people in. Because like his mentor Moses, he's a man who depends on God and a man who's going to do it in the Lord's strength. And this morning, devotionally, I read his valedictory address, his parting farewell to the nation. And it's all about follow the Lord, put aside other gods, follow the Lord, do it in the Lord's power. The Lord's going to give you the land. Wonderful, Joshua. Well, may God help us to learn from both of these men to be faithful to the Lord, to choose the Lord rather than this world like Moses did, and to go on and finish well like Joshua did. May God help each one of us, however old in the faith we may be, to go on well for the glory of God, that he may increase and we may decrease, and that others may be added to his church. If you're here this morning and you're still among those people that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you might have had a lot of this go right by you. You have no idea what I'm talking about. I want to tell you the things we're talking about are tremendous riches. The things we're talking about are real. They're going to be seen one day when the Lord Jesus comes, and we're going to enjoy them forever. If you have the Lord Jesus, you have eternal life, the Bible says. But if you reject the Lord Jesus, the wrath of God abides upon you. In other words, God's righteous anger is one day going to fall on you and judge you for your sins. It's not needed. The Lord Jesus died to pay for your sins. He took the punishment for you. And he's willing to add that payment he made to your account and to say you're free, you're pardoned. You can have eternal life today. You don't have to wait till you die. The Lord Jesus will come and live within you by his spirit and transform you today if you'll let him. But you have to be honest with God. You have to say, I'm a sinner. I'm lost. You're right about me, God. I can't do anything to save myself. I know I'm going to judgment. I know that's what I deserve. I deserve hell. But give me eternal life because of what the Lord Jesus did. Give me eternal life by that one who laid down his life as a sacrifice and rose again to prove it was accepted. Change me, Lord. Save me, Lord. 
And in whatever words you put that, if that's the language of your heart and you mean business with God, he will hear you. He will know it. And I assure you on the authority of the word of God, he will save you. Come to the Lord Jesus and be saved. For those of you who are saved, we rejoice in such a great God and Savior that we have. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful today for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray like John prayed of old, he must increase and we must decrease. Let people forget us, but let them remember our Savior. I think about a story I heard a preacher tell about an older woman on a plane who had never heard of Billy Graham, but she knew the Lord Jesus as her Savior. And Billy Graham's friend said, this is wonderful, someone who doesn't know Billy Graham, but she knows Jesus. And we know that's the key thing, Father, to know the Lord, which passeth knowledge. That's better than anything else we can have in this life. To have that personal knowledge of Christ, to know him as our Lord and Savior, to walk with him, to let him work in our lives by his spirit, to conform us to his image, and to present us in thy presence, Father, for eternity in glory. We thank thee for this. We don't deserve it. And we say, great is our God. Great is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.